So this is one of my very favorite scriptures. It's also uh, a scripture that God uh, has spoken to me profoundly through over the course of my life. And uh, trouble as a preacher is when you get to preach on your favorite scripture, you see so many different things. And this is the last Sunday before Amy and I are away for a few weeks. And I just thought, you're going to be without me for a few weeks. Why don't I just do a medley? Five sermons. One after the other. You've got nowhere to go this afternoon, do you? No, seriously, I'm, I'm going to avoid the temptation, or hopefully I'll avoid the temptation, uh, to preach an incredibly lengthy exegesis on this text, because it's just incredibly rich. What I want to talk about, hopefully, is pretty narrow and well-defined today. I was about nine years of age uh, when... The Windsor Fire Castle took, uh, Windsor Castle Fire, I should say, took place. This was 1992, I think it was November 1992, a picture of it, a very grainy a picture of it on the screen. Now, for those of you who weren't alive <laughs> at that point, which I just blows my mind even to say that, um, Windsor Castle is, is a royal castle. Okay, got that, in Windsor, and... Um, and around 11.15 p.m. on, I think it was the 20th of November, uh, what happened was a spotlight was pressed up against a curtain. And because of the heat that emanated from the spotlight, the curtain uh, caught fire. 11.15 p.m. that took place. And despite the castle having its own dedicated fire service, which is incredible in itself, uh, the fire quickly took hold and within one hour after it starting, there were 39 fire engines with 225 firefighters on site. Nonetheless, they couldn't, all of those uh, appliances, I've learned is the word, couldn't keep the fire under control. Uh, it took nine hours of constant firefighting to bring the fire under any measure of control and a further three hours to extinguish the primary fire completely. It took longer to extinguish some of the other fires, but it was over a day of constant firefighting through the night. Now, a lot of stuff was saved. It so happened that uh, some of the stuff, the, the valuable artifacts, were already out of the castle. They'd been taken away for some show someplace. But Prince Andrew was there and he began to remove, along with others, some of the valuable stuff, but some of it was too big. Uh, two weighty pictures which spanned whole walls and uh, much was lost. The damage caused by this fire was massive. It was massive. There was structural damage, as you can see here. Uh, roofs, whole roofs just completely destroyed. Apartments burned. And there was content damage as well. Many, m many valuable things were lost and destroyed despite the efforts to remove or, or uh, retain them. The damage was massive. The cost of the restoration was enormous. It took 36.5 million pounds in the end. Two million of it was the Queen's money. I don't know if you know this, but after, after this, the Queen agreed to pay income tax, which no monarch has done, I think, since the 1920s. The work spanned more than five years. Restoration is costly. Restoration is painful. It takes time. It takes energy and often, in this case, takes money. Have you ever seen a fire go off in your life? 
you ever experience what it's like for the life that you thought you were building to be burned? Maybe you've experienced a relational crisis, a marriage fails, a relationship ends. You didn't see it coming, but all of a sudden it's there staring you in the face. Maybe you're experiencing grief. Somebody you cared for, you lost, you've lost. Maybe through no fault of your own, or maybe you're experiencing a fire because of your own activity. You've got lost or caught up in sin. And because of that, the life that you were building has crumbled around you. Many of us have experienced something like this. Actually, all of us have or will experience at some time or another fire. A fire going off in our life. And the damage is often huge. It's much greater than we anticipated. The fire spreads more quickly and it's hard to contain the damage. And rebuilding restoration is enormously costly. What is restoration? Restoration is the action of returning something to a former owner, place or condition. The thing is when the fire goes off, you'd do anything, wouldn't you? Just to, just to put it out immediately. So you don't have to feel the damage. And yet, as fires do, it just spreads like wildfire. And you can't stop it. You try and put fire breaks in. You try and sort of get ahead of the rumor before anybody else catches it. And you just can't keep up with it. The damage, it's inevitable. We're all going to experience, whether through our own fault whether through just stuff that happens to us, we're all going to experience in our lives damage that needs to be restored. And here's the thing, that doesn't change if we follow Jesus. It doesn't change. You know, we're still susceptible to a diagnosis of cancer that we hadn't expected. We're still susceptible to our work colleagues cheating uh, us out of a promotion or whatever it is, we're still equally susceptible. The difference for followers of Jesus is who's involved directly, hand-to-hand with us in our restoration. The question I want to ask today, what I really want to get at, is how do we go about finding restoration in the midst of the fires of our lives? Which brings me to Peter, one of my absolute favorite people in the Bible, because he reminds me at times, usually in his more unfaithful moments, I will confess, of myself at times in my life. You know, Peter, the guy who speaks out, who just sort of blurts it out before anybody else has the chance to speak. Often doing so, uh, wonderfully confessing the first voice other than the demons in the Gospels to confess Jesus' identity as Peter. You are the Christ, son of the living God. Wow, amazing. On the day of Pentecost, blurting out the sermon. Well, I've written this one already, guys. I've got this one. You know, he preaches on the day of Pentecost. Powerfully. Yes, he blurts stuff out, but he's also usually the first to make an absolutely dreadful mistake. He is in this scripture somebody who experiences fire going off in his life. And I have been somebody who's experienced fire going off in my life. Some of you heard this story already, so I won't bore you at great length. But I went to university, which was quite a long while ago now, fully confident in God's plan and my own ability to meet people and and help them encounter God, to lead them to Christ. 
I thought I was going to be the next great missionary to my college. And what I found was uh, that in that period of time, in those three years while at university, a fire went off in my life. I left uh, not, having, not only having not converted anyone, but in need of my own conversion. My faith was in tatters. The relationships that I'd built in that time uh, were deeply destructive to my life. And I had an uh, overwhelming sense of being lost. I experienced a significant portion of depression in that time, some anxiety, but just an overarching sense of where am I headed, what am I going to do. It was like a fire, and it devastated so much of what I'd been building. In the final analysis, that fire was God's mercy to me, because so much of what I'd built wasn't worth keeping. But I left university in need of restoration, a little bit like Peter When we meet him in John chapter 21, I do want to encourage you to have your Bible open. If it glows, that's fine. Uh, If it's a smartphone or smart, whatever, but please have it open. We're going to be looking at this in a bit of detail. And when we meet with Peter, what's fascinating is with the other disciples who are mentioned in John chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, what's fascinating is what Peter's doing. What is he doing? He's fishing. And you've got to ask yourself the question, why on earth is he fishing? What is he doing fishing? The context, of course, for Peter's fishing expedition here is failure. The reason Peter's fishing is because a fire has gone off in his life. Most of us know this story. But what happens is that Peter, uh, just weeks earlier, had had an interaction with Jesus in which he confidently boasted of his ability to follow Jesus, whatever happened. We read about it in John chapter 13, 36 to 38. We have it on the screen, I think. Lord, Peter says, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Peter's confession begins in overconfidence. Just like my overconfidence, driving to university thinking, who are the, who are the ones, Lord, you're going to put me around? Who am I going to influence for you? Began with this overconfidence. Now, overconfidence actually is usually birthed in insecurity. The, most, the people who are most puffed up in pride usually within feel a deep sense of insecurity. That's certainly how I felt, though I wouldn't have been able to name it in that time going into university. And Peter has a deep insecurity about who he is, which comes up in his moment of temptation. You know that? When the temperature is turned up, when the fire begins to burn, who you really are within is revealed. And Peter's foundations are not set. They're still in process. Jesus hasn't finished his work with Peter. It will take this fire for Jesus to finish his work. Now let's look at Peter's failure in a bit more detail. John chapter 18, turn back a couple of pages if you can. Don't worry if you can't, it's going to be on the screen. Here's what happens in John chapter 18, verses 15. We read this. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. Okay, what's happening here is that Jesus has now been arrested and Peter and another disciple have joined Jesus following him. Peter clearly remembering his 
confession that he was going to follow Jesus to the end is doing his best to cash out what he's promised. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. We read on. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. What does Peter do? What does Peter say when the fire's turned on, when the pressure's turned up? Here's what he says. I am not. You're not one of these man, this man's disciples, are you? I am not. The first denial, to which Peter adds a further two denials, denying Jesus' existence for him, denying his connection to Jesus, denying the special relationship they've shared, denying that Jesus was not only his friend, his best friend, his rabbi, his teacher, but also his Lord and his Savior, denying any connection to Jesus. This is the beginning of the fire. This is the beginning of Peter's failure. This is why Peter's gone fishing. What do you do when your life falls apart? When the future that you had set before you becomes unattainable. The man who you said you were going to follow even to death, you abandoned him in his death and now he's not around anymore. That future you'd built for yourself is no longer accessible. What do you do? Well, what Peter does, he returns to what he knows. He returns to what he can do. He returns to what he's capable of doing it's as if he's saying it's as if he's hoisting up the white flag admitting defeat which is understandable it's like he's saying look that discipleship stuff that following stuff it's not for me I've proved I can't follow I'm going to fish what takes place next is so staggering it beggars belief In the midst of Peter's profound failure, Jesus shows up. And what he does is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. What, what's the economy, if you like, of restoration? How does it take, what, blow by blow, what do we see? How does Jesus restore Peter? How is Jesus going to restore you and I? Firstly, we see Jesus goes looking for Peter. Chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. This is what we read. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. I love that phrase. It's just, you know, these are eyewitness accounts. That's how we got the Gospels. Eyewitnesses sharing what happened. It happened this way. You can almost blurting it out. This is how it went down. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, where Jesus performed the miracle of turning water into wine. The sons of Zebedee, James and John that is, and the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but then that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Let's see the next slide. The first thing that happens is that Jesus shows up. Jesus goes looking for Peter. Look at this. Jesus appeared again to his disciples. Jesus stood on the shore. Jesus called out to them. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Which I love because it's kind of cheeky, isn't it? Haven't you caught anything? Jesus just 
begins by moving to Peter. And we've seen this in this series that we're in here called Jesus and the One. We've seen this thing repeated again and again and again. Whoever it is that Jesus encounters, he's the one that makes the first move. You know, we can so often forget this. If, if you've been churched, if you've become churchy, then typically what happens to you is that, is that you come to God, you come to Jesus in a moment of usually great grace and you're moved usually deeply by the fact that Jesus, that God loves you, not only, not only that God is real, which is enough, but that he also is kind and gracious and merciful, that he loves you, that he, out of the abundance of his goodness, he creates a space for you and his family, that you can become part of the family of God. And that means you have brothers and sisters, but you also have Father in heaven. And you're saved, not by your own merit, but by grace, through faith. And it's not what you've done, it's what he's done for you. You're blown away by some of these truths. And then, you join the, the reading rotor. And the hospitality team and the whatever else. And you do a bit, you give a bit back. And quite quickly you forget the fact that this was all a gift. We do it, we all do it. We begin to think that we've earned it. And then maybe you get ordained and they stick a collar around you and a bishop's hands on your head and you think, oh, I think I got this. I think I've got this. Maybe some of you have had prophecies spoken over your life, life as a young child. Oh, you wait. You watch. That's what happened to me. You watch when I get to that there uni. They're going to, oh, they're going to love me. They're going to love me. You know, we, we begin to take on a posture as if we deserve something. We begin to think we showed up first. We forget that, no, we're only here because he first loved us. We only love him because he loved us first. We're here because he called us first. He came to us first. He moved to us first. Jesus showed up. It's the most incredible thing. It's the most incredible news for us, but it's also the best news this city's ever heard. And Jesus just wants us to show up to them, for them, because it's in us showing up that he shows up. Jesus goes looking for Peter. Secondly, Jesus reveals himself to Peter. It's not just a kind of vague, distant sighting. Jesus reveals who he is to Peter. Verses 6 and 7, this is what we read. He said, uh, no, they answered, we haven't caught any fish. Not asking, can you help? But no, no, we just haven't caught any fish. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Who's the fisher? Who, who are the fishermen here? The guys in the boat, right? Jesus is a rabbi. When they did, they were unable to, to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. This is an extraordinary thing. This is an incredible moment. What Jesus is doing here is drawing Peter back to who he is. He's revealing his identity. And it's as if he's using like a business card. It's like a passing of a business card. You see, Jesus has done this before. He's got form for this. He's revealed himself in this way before. In Luke chapter five, we see a similar story. I think we have it on the next slide of Jesus showing up in just this way. Next one. 
I think. And this is what we read in Luke chapter 5. When they had done so, in other words, when they put their net on the other side, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. How similar is that? So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. It's as if Jesus is saying, Peter, do you know who I am? And how does he reveal it to him? By taking him back to the beginning. By taking him back to the beginning. By taking him back to the moment where it was just grace. Where all those hopes and dreams and expectations hadn't yet been spoken. Where it was just Jesus and Peter. This was Peter's calling. Do you see that? This was the moment where he was first called in Luke's gospel. And Jesus takes him back there. Jesus reveals himself, but he takes Peter back to the beginning. He reveals himself in the catch of fish, but he also reveals himself through the other disciple. This is what we read. It is the Lord. Then the disciple, verse 7, who Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord, the other disciple. This is often how it happens. Sometimes God draws us back to the beginning of our story. Sometimes he just shows up in the form of somebody else. Somebody who comes alongside us in the midst of breakdown. That's how we see Jesus. Whatever it happens, however it happens, that's what happens. Jesus goes looking for Peter. Jesus reveals himself to Peter. Thirdly, don't miss this. This is a crucial step. This may even be the crucial step. Jesus reveals Peter to Peter. It's one thing to see Jesus. It's an amazing thing. It can't happen without seeing Jesus. But, it, but if it stops at seeing Jesus, we haven't got there. There comes a moment where Jesus has to show us us. And you know, that's why he allows fires. He allows the crucible because we have to learn not just who he is, but who we really are. And Jesus does this in a number of ways with Peter. Firstly, he does it with the fish. I, I quoted Luke's gospel. Here we have the end of that section where, where Peter sees the hall of fish. This is Peter's response. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees, grabbing onto his knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Jesus shows Peter to Peter. He's drawing him back to this previous slide, if you would, just back to this moment. I am a sinful man. Peter needs to see Peter. He needs to be reminded of who he really is. Maybe he got ahead of himself. Maybe out of overconfidence, he thought he was more than he was. And all he is, and all any of us are, are sinners saved by grace. We never get beyond that place. Now we are justified by grace, through faith, yes. We're part of the family of God, yes, but we never stop being who we are. And here's the great news, we don't need to pretend that we do. Every day we wake up in the morning and we kneel before God. How are we gonna do that? In a room, by your bed, how do you do that in the morning? And we just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, saved by grace, thank you. I begin my day with a posture of humility. Jesus reveals himself to Peter with the fish. He does it also with the fire. 
Now, this particular word for fire, it says when they landed, they saw a burning, a fire of burning coals there with a fish on it and some bread. Jesus has done a barbie. Isn't that amazing? A barbecue. He can do barbecues as well. He's like Bear Grylls. As well as dying for the sins of the whole world, he can also make a fire. Amazing. But the word here for fire of burning coals is really interesting. It's a word that's only used in the Bible twice. And both times is in John's gospel. The word is anthracian. And, it, and it's from, we get the word anthrax, I guess, from that word. It speaks of power. It means a, literally just means a fire of burning coals. That's why it's translated that way. The only other time it's mentioned in the gospels, in the, in the New Testament, is in connection with Peter's denial. It was by an anthracian. It was by a fire of burning coals that Peter denied Jesus. I imagine Peter approaching this fire. I imagine, first of all, him smelling it. Have you experienced that? How smell can just bring you back. You know, maybe it's the smell you, you grab a waft of your mum's perfume growing up. You're like, oh, mum. She's going to tell me off. <laughs> or maybe it's uh, cut grass. Love that smell. You're reminded of what it was like to be a kid and to be out playing football. Felt like really late in a summer evening. Whatever it is, smell. Just is capacity to, it's connected uh, really closely to memory. It's also, smell is also connected really closely to emotion. That's how pheromones work. That's how uh, people think. That's how we, that's involved at least in choosing partners. Smell, so be wary, folks, how you smell. Peter smells this fire. It draws him back to his moment of denial. The last time he was by an anthracian. The last time he smelt and saw a fire of burning coals was when he denied Jesus. Jesus here drawing him back. He's showing Peter to Peter. He also does it with the use of his name. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Do you love me more than these? Why Simon, son of John? Why not Peter, which Jesus renamed him a long time ago. In fact, it was John 1, chapter 1, verse 46, that Jesus said, you're not Simon, you'll be Peter. But he began in that early chapter by addressing him, Simon, son of John. The last time he called him Simon, son of John was right at the beginning again. Jesus is using this to bring Peter not just back to the beginning, but back through his failure. I called you the rock, and you've showed me that you lack rockiness. You know, rocks are obdurate, they stand firm, they don't break, they don't will, and yet you wilted. Simon, son of John. And every time he uses that word, it must be like a dagger going into Peter's heart, taking him back to his failure, showing him who he really is. Finally, he does it through a question. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Just the content of the question is enough to break you, isn't it? But how many times has Jesus asked this question to him? Three times. One for every time that Peter renounced Jesus. Taking him back to the heart of it, taking him back to who he really is. Jesus has to show Peter to Peter. So many of us struggle with this. 
know, we're okay with finding out about Jesus, but we're just so desperate not to see the truth of who we are. And so we hide it. We stick it behind a facade. We stick the truth of our failure, maybe our doubts, our disappointments, our hurts and our regrets. We stick them behind a facade and we think that we can lock up the dead bones. And Jesus says there's no way to do that. You can't come into the kingdom that way. The way into the kingdom is on your knees in submission and surrender before the king. And that involves being real. It involves admitting that you are, like Simon Peter, that I am a sinful person. But Jesus also points forward in hope. Look at this. As I come into land. Verse 18. Very truly I tell you, when you were young, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands. Someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death to which Peter would glorify God, by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. I know what you're thinking. How is this hopeful? When you're older, you'll be led to your death. It's not, it doesn't sound particularly hopeful, does it? You know, we, uh, tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. He wasn't willing to be crucified in the same way as Jesus. So he asked to be crucified upside down. Didn't consider himself worthy of being crucified in the same way as Jesus. He was led, dressed and led where he did not want to go. Here's why this is full of hope for Peter. Jesus is saying, you're going to have another chance. You'll get another shot. And what you were unable to do the first time, you will have the chance to do again. And you, my friend, will succeed. How powerful is that? What would that feel like for Peter? That is restoration. A future with hope. The opportunity to follow. The opportunity to do that for which Peter had been prepared all along. He's not Simon, son of John, is he? He's Peter. Then he said to him, follow me. A new call, a new commission, a new beginning. This is restoration. This is what Jesus is able to do. So what does it mean for us? Firstly, hear this. Jesus goes looking for you. Jesus is looking for you. Just as God in the garden goes into the garden asking, where are you hiding? So Jesus comes to us today saying, where are you hiding? What parts of yourself are you hiding from me? Bring them to me. Come to me. All you who are weary, weary with hiding, weary with keeping away reality from God and from others, come. Jesus goes looking. Restoration begins with Jesus coming for us. And he is here this morning searching us, searching me and searching you. Secondly, Jesus shows us who he really is. Restoration begins with revelation. Begins with a revelation of who God is in a deeper way. My prayer for you now and for myself is that the Holy Spirit will reveal to our church a deeper measure of Jesus not just to our church, to every church across this city, a deeper revelation of who Jesus is. 
Jesus can do this in any number of different ways. But here's the thing. You know when you're meeting Jesus because you're surprised. You're surprised by how good he is. What? Some religious people are scandalized by how good Jesus is. He can't be that good. God can't be that good. It's cause and effect, right? You sin, you're done. Not so with Jesus. We meet Jesus and we know we've met him when we're surprised. Jesus shows us who he really is. Would that God would do that in this place today. Thirdly, Jesus shows us who we really are. And we have to go through this painful step. You and I must go through this painful step. And the fire is the gift. Because it's often only in the fire that we see who we really are. When we do the thing we swore we'd never do, when we fail in a way we never imagined, it's then often that we begin to experience and encounter grace in a new way. Finally, Jesus points to a new future with him. Restoration uh, becomes a reality when we look to a new future and we receive a different foundation, a house which has been built, a house whose architect is God. Hebrews chapter 12. The Christian hope is not only of restoration, but redemption. It has to do with being bought back and being given a new purpose, repurposed in the kingdom of God. Have you failed? You're in good company, if so. You're in Peter's company. And all of us who have failed, which clearly includes me, are in Jesus' company. 